Paul had been imprisoned in Rome, and when he left imprisonment, he stopped by this island of Crete, and Titus was with him. He leaves Titus on this island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it was kind of a crazy place. The island of Crete, by their own admission, is a, is a place of liars and crazy, uh, uh, sex-crazed, uh, it's just a difficult place. And Paul says, make disciples there, right? Does that sound familiar? That's what he's called us to do in sort of a crazy place as well. But he gives Titus this assignment. Titus, I want you to, to put things in order. See, Paul's mission is that the church uh, be created, that people come to know Jesus, that they be established in that faith, that leaders be developed out of that faith and out of the grace of God changing men and women uh, to be more like Christ. And then those leaders help Titus on this mission. So he's given, he's given him this assignment. And uh, we see in the first chapter that Paul makes it real clear. This is what good leaders look like, right? And then he does this contrasting piece and says, this is what bad leaders look like. Don't choose those bad guys. Don't do that. Don't, don't pick people who look like this. He's made it very clear for Titus. And I love the clarity that God has given uh, Titus and that he gives us every single day. In fact, he even says about the, the bad list of people, he says they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. In other words, they say one thing and they do another. That's not the kind of leader you need in the church. You need leaders in the church who are going to do what they say. Their yes is a yes and their no is a no. You can trust them, right? You can take it to the bank. They are trustworthy. Well, last week, Leslie's message talked about how really we care for one another. We disciple one another. That's the importance of the church. Why is it important that you're here on Sunday mornings or watching in this season? It's important that we learn and grow. Why is it important that you're in city group developing with one another, growing? Because we're doing this together. And I love the text that, that Leslie preached from last week that talks about older men investing in younger men and older women investing in younger women. And the fact that even in our work, that every part of our lives ought to, to back up what we say that we're teaching. That's what Leslie said, right? L let our lives adorn the doctrine of God. What is the doctrine of God? It's the stuff we teach about God, about how to live in God. So in other words, let us live up to what we say. Don't be like the people that profess one thing and do another. Be a people who says what God is doing and teaches true doctrine, and then we live it out, right? That's what we need to be. And I love the fact that even Paul says that there's seasons in life that we have different responsibilities. And older men, now it's your turn. I'll never forget, it's probably... You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a spring chicken. I'm 48, I think. Is that right? <laughs> you know you're older when you really can't remember quite how old you are. Um, but I remember probably 10 or, or 12 years ago, I remember I had an assistant at a church I was uh, one of the pastors at. And I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks that, oh, my gosh, I need to bring her along. I need to help her understand more about ministry. And that was just one of those deals that was like, Wow, now I'm in that season where I need to be bringing others along. It's kind of an epiphany, kind of a moment for me. But even in this seasons of life, I, I think it was last week, my, my daughter, Daisy, she said, Dad, I know I'm not like an old, old lady or something. She said, but I can help kids younger than me. I was like, you got it. That's it. That's what we're trying to help everybody understand. And I, trust me, you younger guys, you teach me things all the time. So it's not just a one-way direction of learning. 
So what I love about the, the text this morning, what I love about uh, what we've been seeing in Titus is that whether you're on this amazing list of character, or if some of us today are on this not so amazing list of sinfulness, the good news of Jesus this morning is that God saves us. He changes us from, from a people that, that don't know Christ. Can I tell you something? The most godly person in this room today, whoever that may be, right? At one point, they were lawless, sinful, selfish, and lost. And by God's grace, Jesus has saved them and changed them. I'm one of those. I'm not the same person I was. God has changed me from this selfish, sinful person. He's changing me still, and he's changing all of us who are in Christ. It's one of the things we're going to talk about today. So the good news is no matter where you stand, no matter what mistakes you've made or even what you walked in from or with, God loves you, and he can change your life. Not by your hard work, not by your church attendance, by the grace of God and his grace alone. And that's what we're talking about today. Do you have your Bibles? Turn with us in Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter. Thank you, Leslie, for covering most of it. I appreciate that, leaving me these only, only these five verses here. Uh, verse 11 through 15, chapter 2. You ready? Let's read this. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray this morning as we dig into the last part of this chapter. Father, you're so good. You're so kind to us. And we love you, Lord. God, thank you for the hope that we have that no matter what we've done or who we've been, mistakes we've made, that you can change us that your grace can forgive us, that your love for us on the cross can redeem us. We worship today because that is in view. Who we were is in view with who you're making us to be. And Lord, we don't take it lightly. We don't take it for granted. It moves our hearts. And I pray that it moves us more than in song, more than in emotion, that it moves us to obedience, to become the people of God that you are calling us to be. Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to all truth today, that you would help me to decrease and that you would increase in this place, that we might see you more, know you more, love you more. We thank you for this precious time to learn of your word together. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So last week, Leslie's teaching about how we honor the Lord with our lives, the things that we do, how we invest in other people. And again, like in chapter one, Paul gave, gave us a really clear list, right, of this is the good folks, these are the bad folks. Chapter two, this is how we live. This is the things that we do. It's really clear, very simple to read and understand, not so simple to live out sometimes. And this morning, our message today in our text is connected to last week's by this one word at the beginning of our text, right? In other words, after all that we've learned about how to invest in each other's lives, why do we do that? 
and that's connected by the first word in our text, which is for. It's called a conjunction, and it connects these two passages together. Why do we invest in each other? Why do we submit to each other? Why do we continue to long to grow and understand who Jesus is and live it out in our lives? For a reason, right? Look at it with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. For, the reason we do this is for the grace of God. You leave today, I want you to understand and take with you that this message and this, this text is about the grace of God. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his grace. Um, can I, for those of you who are kind of still learning what that word means, let me explain it. It is the unmerited favor, kindness, compassion, love, goodness of God that he gives to unworthy people like me, right? I don't deserve any of those things. I am a sinner. I am broken. I'm ruined. I'm fallen apart from the grace of God. I have no hope otherwise. I stand here right now only because of the grace of God. That's it. That's it. And so why do we invest in each other's lives? Because of the grace of God given to us, and now we get a chance to give it to others. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. First point I want to make this morning is that God's grace saves us and it sanctifies us. It saves us and it sanctifies us. I'm not sure where you came to know the Lord. For those of us who are Christ followers, there's probably a moment in time. You go back to a camp. You go back to a church service. You go back to a mom or a dad leading you to the Lord, whatever, wherever it was. But one big thing that this Big C Church has missed is it's not just about that moment of salvation. Praise God for the moment that, that God saved you. And, and gave you that grace to forgive you of your sins and secure heaven for you. But a life in Christ is not just one moment. It's not just a transactional thing that happens. It is now a lifelong pursuit of following, understanding, loving Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to see that that's called sanctification. But the text says for us, for the grace of God appeared. It's talking about Jesus. It's talking about when Jesus came to this earth, he brought with him visible, tangible grace. Right? Look with me. John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. He came with grace. When he appeared, he brought grace. Romans 5, 8 helps us understand what that means. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the verse doesn't say, when you got cleaned up enough, when you understood this completely, when your life was perfect. No, it says when you were in the mud, when you were in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of your addiction, and you didn't care, Christ died for you. That is grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, that's grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And yet God has given it so freely to us. God has always been a, a God of grace. It doesn't just show up when Jesus showed up. He, he, his, his character is consistent, God is. Yesterday, today, and forever. So he's always been a God of grace. I'm reading through a reading plan, again, uh, my attempt to go through the, the whole Bible again this year. And from the beginning, you see over and over again how God is a God of grace. I mean, I'm in Leviticus right now, which is not an easy book to stay with, right? God really tests us on the early part of these reading plans. Stay with it. Hang in there. But in the middle of Leviticus, and God is helping his people know what, it, what, it, what they need to do in order to live with a holy God. And there's so many rules and so many things and so much stuff there that you just kind of blows your mind. And they don't keep it. They, don't, they, they make mistakes. And so he works in all these little moments of grace. In fact, giving of the law in itself is a grace. God is a God of grace. He always has been. Paul uses this word appeared, that grace appeared. It comes from a Greek word where we get the same word epiphany. Have you ever had an epiphany? You know, an epiphany is where you're all of a sudden you're thinking about a problem or an issue or something else and you go, oh my gosh, I, I got it. You know what I mean? I get it. I understand. I see it. It literally means something that was hidden or invisible is now in plain sight. Whether it's actually something visible that you see or something that you think and God reveals it to you and you go from not understanding to understanding. Oh my gosh, I got it. That's an epiphany. That's the word in the Greek here that, that Paul uses for appeared. So when Jesus appeared, we hadn't seen him and he showed up. He's visible. Grace we hadn't seen or experienced is visible. Think about the Jewish, uh, the nation of Israel, right? Again, Leviticus, all these rules, all these laws, all these things, all these messianic prophecies of the Messiah coming to save them and rule, and all this strict adherence to all these things, and the grace of God appears. Messiah comes. His name is Jesus. He comes in the form of, of humanity to take our sin from us, to be sin for us. And the good news this morning, I love this. Look at, look at the text. I want to just read this first sentence again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For all people. Can I tell you something? God loves you. He loves every person. Every single person on this planet, he loves. And he longs for salvation for every single person. For all people. Every single one. Every man, woman, and child. That is God's heart. John 3, 16 and 17. I know you've heard this, but... Let's keep reading it and understanding it and knowing it more and believing it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the rescue plan for me and for you, for this world. It's God's plan because he loves us so much and so he sends Jesus full of grace 
Daniel Aiken says this. He says, he has made it known for all the world to see the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made all men savable. Every sin of every person has its answer in Jesus. No nation, tongue, people, or person is excluded from his saving work. Hallelujah, right? We know it's true because you can look in in, uh, Revelation and you can see that it says, every tribe, nation, and tongue will be worshiping Jesus, right? There is no person or people excluded from the saving work of Jesus. But we have to understand that God's grace doesn't just save us, just doesn't just give us fire insurance. If for some reason in your story, in your experience, it was, yeah, I, I, somebody walked me through a prayer, I prayed a prayer, and that's, I, I'm been, I guess I'm good. I don't do much else. I don't really do church. I don't do other things that church people do, well, then you miss the point, okay? God's grace saves us, yes, but it doesn't stop. God's grace sanctifies us, continues to move in us, continues to change us into who God wants us to be. In Paul's writing, it's always connected this, this aspect of what we believe and how we behave. It's two sides of the same coin. If you were a follower of Jesus, it should be impossible for you to believe one thing and do another. At least that shouldn't characterize your life. If you believe one thing, then you ought to behave in consistency with that thing, right? Your life ought to speak of what you believe, and what you believe ought to characterize what you do, how you behave, how you live. They're the same, the two sides of the same coin, belief and behavior. Now, The same text, again, is not just a saving grace, but a sanctifying grace. That's the big theological word for change. God is saving and sanctifying, changing us. Look at at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you feel like you're in training If you're a follower of Christ, does it feel like God's teaching you something? Are there times still where you go, oh, I still need to learn that. Oh, my life is, I've been making some mistakes. Oh, God is revealing some things that I need to change. Is that happening in your walk? If it is, it's a good thing. (laughs) It means that you're still in the training. You're still uh, understanding that God is not finished with you. We don't graduate from discipleship. We never do. We never will until we go home to be with the Lord. So we have to acknowledge that there is this process that we're still growing, still learning. But what does it mean to renounce something? It it means to formally declare one's abandonment of something. I'm done with this. It means the people around your life, your family, your friends, your work, those people that you spend time with, they know you're done with something. So if you've struggled with an addiction, do the people closest to you who you confide in, do they know you're done, you've renounced? ungodliness and worldly passions what has been something in your life that you've needed to say I'm done I'm done with maybe you said to a friend hey hold me accountable because I want to be done with this I want to renounce it I'm, I'm done I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore so we get a negative aspect and a positive aspect to this uh admonition from Paul renounce like this is, you need to get rid of these things in your life. 
And then you also need to be this kind of people, the kind of people that has self-control. We need to live upright and godly lives. Is there discipline? Are there spiritual disciplines in your life? In this train, you know, you can't train for anything, literally anything without discipline. Marcos, an awesome boxing coach. Marcos, you think I could win a, a bout if I never worked out? Probably not. I could probably never, <laughs> he has faith in me. He gave me a thumbs up. You can't win anything. You can't grow in anything. You can't be competitive. You can't train and not have discipline. Discipline is, is your commitment to do the hard things even when you don't want to. Discipline is even when you're in the middle of Leviticus going, I'm going to read it. and I'm going to try to understand it. I'm going to try to see what God's saying to me in it. We need to be a people of discipline, of self-control, where we can say, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm going to make intentional choices not to. On the night of our city group, on the day of our city group, and you go, oh, I'm tired. It's been a hard week. It's been a what, dot, 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 dot. The greatest thing you could say is, you know what? But God has called me to connectedness and community and life with other people. And though I'm struggling, my flesh may be weak, I pray that my spirit is strong. And then I can move towards knowing Christ more. I'm going to move myself to group. And I'm going to do that to honor the Lord because I know I need it in my life. That's discipline. That's what moves us closer to knowing Christ, to live a self-controlled an upright and godly life. So do people see in you that there's discipline? Do they see you as a person of discipline? Do they see that you have renounced these things? Do they see uh, that you're passionate about anything more than you are Christ? If so, we need to consider that, what that looks like. Uh, I love this quote from Jerry Bridges in his book, Discipline of Grace. He says, self-control expresses the self-restraint we need to practice uh, toward the good and legitimate things of life as well as the outright denial of things clearly sinful. Upright or righteous conduct refers to just the right actions toward other people, doing them uh, what we would have them do to us, doing to them what we'd have them do to us, Matthew 7, 12. Godliness is having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our lives, doing everything out of reverence and love for him. Does who we are in Christ and what we believe make its way through into who we are and what we do? That's the question. See, the title of the message this morning is Grace and the In-Between. Grace and the in-between. What am I talking about? What am I talking about? Well, Paul says in our text that grace appears, right? When Jesus comes, grace appears. Then he talks about waiting for this blessed hope, right? So it's a, it's a looking back to what Jesus has done on the cross, and it's a looking forward to what he's going to do. Did you know that we're living in the middle of the pages of, of the Bible, right? You look at the Bible sometimes, you go, that's a cool history book. No, 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 no. It's a present book. Yes, there's history, but there's also future. And where does that place you? <laughs> in the in-between, right? It places you right in the in-between. We're, we're kind of living in this state of already and not yet, the present age. And if we ever needed it, we need grace 
in this present age. Paul reminds us that it's not just grace appearing, but it's this waiting for our blessed hope. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. And he encourages us to live for Christ in the middle, right? In the in-between. So look with me in the text. Seminary professor said, uh, if you have to, read your text two or three times over. That way the people at least get something decent out of your message. So let's read the text again. How about Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right now, waiting for our blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? He answers it right here. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what's the blessed hope? Jesus' second coming. Jesus returning. That's what we wait for. That's what we look to. But, but I want you to notice that first time Jesus comes, he comes in grace. But when he comes again, he comes in glory. There's a big difference, right? He kind of succumbs. He, he, he allows himself to, to take on the form of human uh, sin, brokenness, and flesh. And in doing so, he comes in grace. But the second time he comes, he will come in all of his glory. And you see, you see this title that Paul gives him. Look at it. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? So there's a lot of false doctrines, a lot of false uh, churches, if you will, that deny the deity of Jesus. And they even, we've talked about this, they reprint the Bible to say what they want to say. Right? So that when you read it, you don't see that Jesus is our great God and Savior. They, They take that out to make it fit what they want, their narrative that they want to fit. This is taken from the original language. Paul says what he means to say, that Jesus isn't just our Savior, he is our God. He, he did the things as God. What does God do? God uh, is worshipped. He allowed, Jesus allowed people to worship him. God forgives sin. Jesus forgave sin. God raises people from the dead. Jesus did that. Jesus healed people. He did only the things that God could do. And, and Paul says here, he is our great God and Savior. I love this because it is unmistakably clear, the deity of Jesus, right? As a part of a triune God, he is Savior and our great, great God. All right, here's the second point I want to make to you today. We only have two. First one is God saves us, God sustains us, or God sanctifies us, I'm sorry. God saves us and sanctifies us. Here's the second point. God's grace redeems us purifies us, and possesses us. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It says that you and I are are lawless people. Some of you go, no, I, I stayed under the speed limit this morning. Right? I, have not, I have never stolen a thing in my life. How you, you know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's law, right? And the thing that we know, Paul says that 
God gave us the law so that we would know we can't keep it. Paul said, God has given us the law to show us that we're sinful people. And if you're in the middle of Leviticus and you're reading all this stuff, you know, there's no way, right? There's no way to keep all these things. And that's the purpose of the law, to show you that you can't do it. And the good news, the gospel of Jesus this morning is that he did. Jesus did keep every single law. Jesus was perfect in his life, sinless. And where we couldn't do it, he did. Where we failed, he succeeded, right? Where we were fallen, he is perfect and holy, and he kept every one. And so, when he goes to the cross to give of his perfect life that met every single law and fulfilled everything in the law, he could offer it to us. The great exchange. That even though we were lawless, we could have his perfection by his grace and by his sacrifice. Look, look again at what it says. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from our lawlessness. Right? We couldn't keep this law. And so Jesus gave himself for us. He died so that we could have life even though we were sinful, even though we had broken these laws, he didn't. He offered this for us. I, I love the way Romans puts this. Romans 8, 3, and 4 says this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This weak flesh could not do it. But look what God has done. Uh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, because we couldn't do it otherwise. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, this is a matter of faith. This is a spiritual act. And God has sent his only Son to save all people, this is this beautiful exchange that he's given us. So Jesus not only redeems us, but he purifies us. Look at uh, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Love that. One of my favorite verses of, of all time. First uh, John 1, 9. For if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and purify me from all unrighteousness. Not just about God saying, yeah, don't worry about it. No, it's, he changes us and purifies us and gives us his life, this, this clean life that only Jesus had and only Jesus could live. So we, we see these things. He redeems us. He purifies us. And then we see this, this statement here. He makes us a people of his own possession. Talking to a friend yesterday, uh, or a couple of days ago, we were talking about this, and he said, you got kids? I was like, yeah. He goes, man, do you, are those your kids? Are those, that's your possession? Absolutely. They're mine. He said, if you were to adopt a kid, that, that'd be your kid. Yeah, it'd be mine. Kind of the same thing that we see in, in Israel and those of us who are not Israel, right? We are adopted into the, to the uh, family of God. And so we are a people of his possession. 
Paul's using this ancient language. Look all the way back in Exodus, right? Second book in the Bible, Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, command, uh, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession above, among all peoples, uh, for all the earth is mine. We even see this language in Revelation. God has created a people for himself to live with, to be among us. And Peter uses this language, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to see something. You know, we talk about Israel and, and, and the Jewish people being God's people. And yes, that, that there's a biblical significance to that statement. And there was a time that that was true. But I want you to know, those of us who will be in heaven as a possession of God is not due to some ethnic aspect of our lives. It's not due to a place that we live, like Israel or Jerusalem, right? It's about the faith that we have in Christ. That's what makes us a family. That's what brings us into the family. Paul really works this out in Galatians in our series we work through this. God adopts us as sons and daughters through faith, right? Adam believed, and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. It was faith. And so the family is a family of faith, not a family of color or culture or location. It's a family of faith. And so God is bringing to himself a people of his own possession. And can I just say, when God saves us and he begins to sanctify us, he's redeemed us, he's purified us, and he's made us his people, he wants us to represent him. It's just a natural outworking of, uh, of who we've been and what God has done. That When he changes us, he places his heart in us. He places his life in us. And then we ought to start representing God. Right? This makes sense. It doesn't make sense to not represent God and say you believe. It's that whole coin of belief and behavior. God loves this world and he wants to love this world through you. God wants to change the brokenness of this world, and he wants to change the brokenness of this world through you, right? We can't just hide out in our homes and go, sure hope something happens here. I hope somebody does something. Somebody needs to do something. It's you. It's me. Because God has saved us, changed us, redeemed us, purified us, made us his people, and he wants us to now do the things of God in the world, right? We call those good works. In fact, I, I love this verse, uh, Philippians 2.13. I'm going to read it out of the, the Living Bible. I just love the way it's stated here. So clear. Listen to this. For God is at work within you, helping you want to do what he wants, and then helping you do, make sure I'm saying this right, helping you want to obey him, and then helping you do what he wants. I'm going to read it again. For God is at work within you, helping you want to obey him and then helping you do what he wants. Some of you say, I just feel like I struggle so much obeying God, doing the things God wants me to do. Listen, he's in you and he's helping you obey him. He's giving you uh, his power. He's assisting you. He's caring for you. 
And then as, as you learn to do what he wants and obey him, he, he helps you do the things in the world that he wants. He want, you get to represent him. We get to be God's people doing God's work, being the hands and feet and heart of God for this broken and needy world. Our lives, in other words, like Leslie said last week, our lives get to adorn what we say. We get to do the things that people go, wow, that, that guy's doing something. He believes something, not just about him. What I love about this is even in our, in our book of Titus from Leslie's message last week, it talks about when we do good works, when we live this way out of this change of our lives because of who we are in Jesus, people can't even argue with it. I mean, we're living in the middle of a, an age of argument, aren't we? If it's either politics or religion or some other thing. But when we are operating in the, the spirit and heart and mind of God, people can't even argue with it. Look at this. Titus 2, 7 through 9 says this. Show yourself in all aspects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Right? You may have disagreements with, with different people, but then when you clean up that elementary school, they go, man, that guy, well, he did clean up the elementary school. I, can't, I, can't. I don't know about that church over there, but man, they, they really made a difference in Southwest Little Rock. Man, I don't know about those family, that family in that house. I'm not, I don't believe like they do. They're, they're kind of Jesus freaks. But they have really been kind and caring for everybody in our neighborhood. Let our good works be something that people can't argue with. And they glorify God in heaven, the Bible says, right? Now, it's important for us, anytime you use the word good works, it's important for us to, to make this statement because sometimes people get it backwards, right? They think, if I do good works, and then I can be a Christian. I need to clean up my life. I need to do all these things. And I, need, I need to start doing, I need to start, I always hear this, I started reading my Bible. Oh, great, right. That's a good thing. But we don't, listen carefully, we don't do good works to be accepted by God. Our good works are not accepted by God so that we can have some position. Our position with God is only given to us by God's grace. In Jesus, through faith. But, if God's grace has made a difference in your life, if you are his child, if you love him, if you're growing to be like him, then guess what should be coming out of your life? There ought to be, there ought to be a change. There ought to be a desire. There ought to be something in you that goes, I want to help that person. I, I want to do more over here. I want, I want people to know this God who's given me life. I want everybody to have this life. I want everybody to have this forgiveness, this joy. And so good works become a part of our lives, not for favor of God, but because of his favor in us, it becomes who we want to be. And then the love of God, the plan and heart of God begins to happen in the world through God's people, right? This is the exact opposite that Paul says about Cretans. Remember what he said about the people in Crete? He said they're disqualified and unfit for any good work. These people, these werewolves we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they're unfit for any good work. But Christians, those are the people who ought to have the heart, soul, mind of Christ, and those things come through our lives, and we literally can be a people zealous, Paul uses this word, eager to do good works. 
to be God's hands and feet in this world. Look at this last verse with me, Titus 2.15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. I'm a pretty big fan of this television show called The Office. It's, it's hit or miss, but there's one episode that I love quite a bit. Uh, the uh, manager of the office, Michael, he's, he's going to have to go through bankruptcy. And he, is, he doesn't understand that bankruptcy is a paperwork sort of a thing, right? He has to declare bankruptcy on paper and taxes and his, you know. And he walks out of the office and he goes, I declare bankruptcy! And he didn't quite understand that doesn't really do anything. So the accountant kind of walks up to him and goes, that didn't do anything. That's not, that's not how you declare bankruptcy, Right? It's hilarious. And you know what else is hilarious? Christians who think that saying one thing is enough. I declare I'm a Christian, but my life doesn't live it. I declare that I've I've accepted Jesus, but how I live doesn't look like I have. You You see what I'm trying to say here? Paul is saying, make it clear. To declare something is to make something clearly known. To, to boldly state a position. He says, declare these things. What are the these things he's talking about? He's talking about all these things from, from chapter 1, from verses 1 through 10. He's talking about doctrine. He's talking about how to live, how to honor Christ with our lives, not only what we believe but how we behave. Declare these things so that people will know. And then he gives them this order. He says, exhort, right, which means encourage, and also rebuke which means discipline, straighten up. So who's he talking to? Well, remember these lists? (laughs) He gives us clearly this list of people who are honoring God and people who are not. So the people who are honoring God, man, pat them on the back and say, you're doing great. I'm proud of you. God's growing you in his grace. And the people who are dishonoring God with their lives walk with them lovingly. Do you remember what it said? I think it's verse 10 in chapter 1 when he said, so that they might be sound in the faith. There's a reason we rebuke. There's a reason we lovingly correct. There's a reason we come along to somebody and say, man, you need help. And we love you. And we want to help you so that they're sound in the faith. And, and, And then Paul says, listen, Titus, you have authority. You have authority because I'm giving you that authority. And guess what? My authority comes from Jesus himself. So you have my authority, but more, a lot more important than Paul's authority, you have Jesus' authority to continue this mission, to go in all the world and make disciples. That's your authority. And so walk in strength. Let no one disregard you. See, the grace of God appeared in Jesus, his death on the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, That grace saves us and can save anyone, right? But it should also change us. So whether you're a new Christian, maybe you're not a Christian at all, maybe you've been a believer for 60 years, God is longing to train you, either helping you come to know Jesus by his grace or helping you grow more like Jesus in his grace in sanctification. And so he's given us these clear thoughts as I close. He wants us to be a people, right? Who, are, who make it clear, who declare these things uh, in our lives that we renounce and we're done with ungodliness and worldly passions, that we're a people of self-control, 
people of spiritual disciplines, that other people say he's upright, he's godly, and that we see that God has a mission and he wants to work it through us, that we get an opportunity to be God's hands and feet and do the things he wants us to do, to do good works. So here, I want to close. Do you know Jesus? That's the first thing I want to say. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Maybe you made some prayer, you, you did something at a camp, but it's never, it, it didn't really mean anything to you. You said some words. Listen, come to know Christ today. His grace has appeared. It can be a, an epiphany for you. You can go from not understanding, not seeing, to going, ha ha, I get it. I get that everything in this world is about Jesus loving people. That God loves this world so much he sent his only son and it can change me. And then as it changes me, I can help other people. That's the plan. That's the goal. All because of his grace. And then let me ask this. Maybe you know Christ. Most of you, I think, probably do. How does your life look when it's put up against these things? Are we renouncing ungodliness? When we see it, when we hear it, when we think it, Right? When, when it slips out of our mouth, when it's something we see on TV, are we going, I don't need that. I'm done with that. Are we saying, God, I need discipline in my life. I need spiritual disciplines in your word. I need to pray. I need to seek you. I need people in my life that I'm submitted to. There's so many of these things. We did a whole series called Life on Spiritual Disciplines. You can watch it on our website. Is this who we are? And if it's not, what is God saying to you this morning about who you need to be, right? By his grace, listen. Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but he came to save it. So there's not a pointing finger at you. It's more like this. <laughs> Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Paul knew this grace. He knew who he had been. He knew the mistakes he had made. And yet he knew the grace of God, and it changed everything. The grace of God can change anything in your life. Anything you've done, whatever's happened, would you trust him? Would you live for him? Would you make some intentional changes so that he can use you for good works? Pray with me this morning. Lord, we love you. God, I know that it is your heart that we not be a people who profess one thing and yet our lives live something else. I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would be convicting our hearts even now. God, that you would speak to us about being truthful. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about being honest in our imperfection. Saying, Lord, you are perfect and we are not. And we have sinned, God. We are a broken and sinful people and our only hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. God, we acknowledge that. And so if there's anything in our lives that is inconsistent with what we say, if there's anything in how we live that's inconsistent with what we believe, God, would you convict our hearts now? And I pray that your spirit would, would convict and move and comfort and change and draw us, Holy Spirit of the living God, to be who you want us to be not worrying about anybody else in this room or anybody else in this world, only worrying about what you thank God, what you want of us, Lord. Thank you that your grace is enough. God, thank you for your amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. 
There's no doubt I once was lost. But by your grace, I've had an epiphany, God. I've seen your truth and your goodness, and it has saved me, and it's changing me. And may that change not just be about me. May it be about you longing to change the world. And so give me the courage, Lord, to be who you've called me to be. Father, we love you. We pray that you would be with us, that you would lead us to become who you'd have us to be, Lord, in this time of commitment and worship. In Jesus' precious name, amen.